The Heal Podcast has been created to explore my favorite ingredients for a long-term, sustainable, healthy human experience. We take an informed look into topics that include nutritional and emotional well-being, as well as expanding consciousness. Heal stands for healthy eating and living. So why not sit back, relax, be present, and enjoy the conversations about this unique gift we were all given called life. If you feel this podcast has resonated with you, please feel free to share it with your friends, family, and colleagues, as the gift of knowledge is something wondrous. Thank you for your open hearts and minds. Alrighty, let's get into some delicious healing. If you would like to become a qualified health coach, then the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, or IIN for short, can help you achieve your goals. I completed their health coaching course many years ago, which has been one of the catalysts for my own journey into what I now love to do, which is to help people achieve greater health through the sharing of information through my books, seminars, podcasts, TV shows and films. I recommend IIN for anyone wishing to pursue a career in the health coaching and wellness space. IIN is a one-year course, so that if you're a full-time worker, busy parent, or wherever you are in your life, it is flexible enough so you'll be able to complete all the required curriculum. Please see the link included in the podcast show notes or my website to access the free sample class and first module of their program. This will give you a great taste of the format as well as the structure, and you can also utilize my special discount that I can offer you if you decide to sign up. Make sure you tell the admissions team that you're part of the Pete Evans Tuition Savings to claim your very substantial discount. Please visit integrativenutrition.com or email admissions at integrativenutrition.com. Dr. Gary Schleifer is a board-certified internal medicine physician specializing in preventative care, nutrition, metabolism, and anti-aging medicine. Dr. Schleifer brings his robust experience with hospital inpatient medicine to his outpatient primary care practice in order to help prevent and cure disease for his patients. He is the founder of Evolve Healthcare in Los Angeles, a multi-specialty integrative medicine clinic focused on disease prevention and lifestyle optimization. He is also co-founder of Sapien, an organization focused on promoting health education and advancing health information technology. After immigrating from Russia with his family at age three, Dr. Schleifer grew up in the San Fernando Valley, where he returned after his medical training to build his practice. Through his companies and community outreach, the doctor works to promote his message of healthy living, eating and lifestyle practices while becoming a leader in his community. To find out more about Dr. Gary Schleifer, go to sapien.org. That's S-A-P-I-E-N dot O-R-G. Dr. Gary, thank you for being on the podcast today. I'd love to start off with your job title, and that is a doctor of internal medicine. What does that mean? Yeah, so as an internist, I'm a general practitioner, and I, uh, I specialize in uh, taking care of adults. Really, my training was taking care of sick adults and managing medications, managing chronic medical issues, anything from diabetes, heart disease, um, cancer, you know. And we get some training in preventative medicine and outpatient medicine. Me personally, I've chosen to focus my career on preventative care and, and trying to keep people healthy. 
And so that's sort of the niche I'm carving out for myself. And I, I got a lot of training also as a hospitalist. So I'm, I'm really good at taking care of sick people in the hospital. Um, but again, my passion really lies in the outpatient setting where I can prevent disease and keep people out of the hospital. So talking about prevention of disease, it's, it's one of my, uh, I guess, one of my passions or one of the things that if somebody said, if you have three wishes, one of them would be for everybody to understand preventative health. I th- because it's interesting, we know of each other and the one thing that I don't get pissed off about, but I find <laughs> very, very disappointing or very frustrating is that it seems to be the last resort for so many people is to change their diet or look at their lifestyle. Right. And once they do that, once they bite that, that bit of pill and say, okay, fuck, if it's the last possible chance I have, I might include more meat and more fat in my diet. You know, if you really, if, it, if this is going to save me, this is the last possible thing. Mm-hmm. So how big a doctor can you create preventative medicine when generally would you be dealing with people that are coming that are already sick, so to speak? So Yeah. I mean, listen, this is like the best question because it's the biggest problem with our healthcare system is we have a sick care system, right? We, we take care, we, we treat diseases. We take care of sick people. Instead, and it, it's more of an ideology, right? Is, you know, we've been kind of programmed to think that there's a, no, no pun intended, but definitely pun intended, like a magic pill to fix everything, right? Mm-hmm. We've been told that, oh, this hurts, take this. You know, uh, your blood sugar is high, take this pill or inject this medication. And, and I think that that's sort of programmed into us. And it's programmed not just into the general population, but into physicians' minds. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was trained that diabetes was a chronic medical disease that's irreversible and that we have to use medicines and, and count carbs. And that's the only way to treat it. And so I think there's a kind of an almost a, a dogma or an ideology in healthcare that is really just consistent with sick care. And so it goes, you know, and so the thing that I try to do is try to be, I, you know, I, I like to say I practice alternative medicine, but really I just, I just try to use natural therapies, everything from food, like you talked about food as medicine to movement, you know, exercise, which most people understand, but then going into things like mindfulness practices, meditation, yoga. I even encourage people to just read a book sometimes to relax and stop staring at their computer, you know, emphasizing things like sleep hygiene, which is also just not talked about enough, how important getting the right amount of quality sleep is. So, I mean, movies like yours and, you know, just creating the concept in people's minds that you can prevent disease, that gaining a few pounds every year is not the default, you know, lifestyle for a human Mm -hmm. that having brain fog or waking up hungry or, or, you know, all these kind of things that people have accepted as normal are just, they're not normal. Most of them are induced by metabolic disorder, by poisonous foods, by unhealthy lifestyle practices. And I think that this is what, you know, the idea of getting people to do preventative medicine or preventative care is really changing the dogma and the idea of what medicine is. How do you then promote that as a way moving forward? I mean, is the medical profession promoting this? Is the industries promoting this? Is doctors as a whole in the United States promoting this? Or are you one of the, you know, are you in a very small percentage or a large percentage? And how does it when do you see the day that this will become, you know, it's nearly like 
okay, kids, if you don't want to get sick, this is how preventative medicine works. And, and they learn that through their formative years, you know, which is the most important time to, I guess, uh, program children into it. So when do you see this happening or do you see this system never being fixed in the foreseeable future? I mean, I definitely think we can fix it. I, I you know, podcasting and this community of healthy eating that I've found honestly through uh, to this community. So I, I work with a company called Sapien. It's a company I started with Brian Sanders and Yanif Fatucci. And you can learn more about it at sapien.org. But we basically made the company to promote this concept of living your life more like a homo sapien. I think movies like yours, uh, podcasts like this, you know, there's a lot of um, thought leaders out there that are propagating this. Um, in medicine, there's a specialty called functional medicine which I'm sure you're familiar with, but these are doctors that learn about food and herbs and natural products to help people feel better. You know, I think there's, there's a big push for it. Even, look, so I'm an osteopathic physician and I was trained as, you know, in Western medicine practice and had exposure to other treatment modalities. And there's a lot of us here in America and, and we're opening our minds to this sort of uh, approach. It's just going to take time. And a lot of it too is, you know, older, and this is something I've noticed more recently is, you know, in my community, I'm this young doctor that's pro promoting food as medicine and lifestyle modifications, and I'm having great success. And, and a lot of doctors in the hospital, when I'm rounding in the hospital, will come and ask me questions. And what I've noticed is the doctors that are like a little too old, are, are they're not open-minded enough to even accept that this is possible. Mm. And so I do think that there's a little bit of waiting till the old guard leaves the, the power, you know, to younger people that have control. It seems very, very difficult when I'm talking to doctors over 50, over 60 to really explain to them that, hey, you got fat wrong. You got the frequency of eating wrong. You, you probably even got fiber recommendations wrong. And, you know, that's a tough pill for them to swallow. Mm. So I do think that it's going to take a lot of education, a lot of, um, you know, vocal people with personalities that can get through to people. But is there one solution? I, I don't really think so. I think it's very hard to convince people. You know, the food companies and the drug companies aren't going to aren't going to be happy with with these recommendations. You know, I worry. I don't know about conspiracy theories, but I worry that there's a lot of forces against our messaging. You know. Mm with a lot of money. It's interesting. Uh, we're putting together the second film, which is called The Magic Plant, which is on cannabis. And I spent some time traveling overseas and I met two doctors, two remarkable doctors that really stood out for me in the States. And one was in Santa Barbara and the other uh, was in Colorado. And both of these gentlemen were in their seventies, still practicing medicine as GPs. Mm. And mm. they were probably the most open-minded doctors or some of the most open-minded doctors I've had the pleasure of interviewing. Love it. And one was David Beerman out of California, who is, well, I guess, one of the grandfathers of cannabis medicine. And then we've got Dr. Rav uh, Ivka out of Colorado. And what I loved about sitting opposite them was how open-minded they were. And these are gentlemen in their 70s that have used cannabis, obviously, and consumed cannabis, and they've seen the benefits of just this one plant. They're both saying it's not the magic plant either. It's not the magic pill. It's just another tool for us to use mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In, in our medicine chest. 
And I can't help but think with the endocannabinoid system, and I'm not sure whether this is your specialty or not, but it feels like that cannabis can be a, a supplement or a preventative measure. I'm looking forward to seeing who's going to be out there promoting that if it actually is true and how that will be. Because what you said before is you practice alternative medicine where mm. for me it's uh, even the word alternative sort of for, for the old guard would put their hairs on the back of their neck mm -hmm. up. And so how do we change from alternative to real, <laughs> real preventative medicine? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. And I mean, that's so exciting and I'm not surprised that it, you know, it's older doctors that are open to plant medicine, right? I think that, you know, in line with this idea of cannabis as a medicine, as a treatment modality, as an option, at least there's also a big push for, psychedelic medicine, especially psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that people in, in that community and people that are open to that are also understanding what we're talking about when it comes to preventative medicine and nutrition and food as medicine. It's, it all sort of goes together, but it's this idea that, look, Western medicine is great. We've done a lot of great stuff with it, but it doesn't have all the answers. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it may have gotten a lot of things wrong. A lot of things. And it may have been polluted by um, religious ideologies, um, you know, propaganda against certain drugs. And I think now in the time of, in the age of information and in the age of the internet and all this great communication we can do, it's time to sort of take the veil off of some of these, you know, misunderstandings, like this whole marijuana thing. Like, it, it's great. We know it. In my clinical practice, I use marijuana to get people off of addictive medicines you know, benzodiazepines, uh, opiates, and, and people do great on it. Now, sometimes it can become a problem, but under supervision and under an understanding practitioner, I think, I think cannabis is, is one of our most powerful tools. Mm. And, and this is not a new thing, right? There's evidence historically and even in, you know, it, when it comes to studies specifically with CBD, so I think that, you know, you're really on track with, with this cannabis thing, but it goes even further. You know, um, I, I believe in ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. There's a new drug that just got released uh, by Johnson & Johnson, FDA approved, called Spravato for depression. And I think that that's the first step of many, many options to use ketamine. The FDA, I mean, sorry, the uh, VA administration is in third uh, and is in phase three clinical trials using MDMA. Well, let's just stop there for a second because I want to dig in. Did I go too far off with my... <laughs> no, no, actually, the third film that I'm creating at the moment, which we've started producing, is we're going to feature what you're talking about, which yeah. is um, different plant medicines other than cannabis and different psychedelic and entheogens yeah. as one of the, again, one of the tools for health. So I'm passionate about discovering all these different modalities that can help humankind. And I feel like we've, we've sort of covered the food side. We're going to cover the cannabis. The next one is what else is there? And it's about removing negative belief patterns about ourselves, stopping yeah. addictions, these types of things. So what is out there? Because for me, and this is just my perception, food seems to be the easiest one for us to change if we choose to do it. Now, cannabis can be something that we can include into our into our lifestyle if we choose to do it and depending on the legalities surrounding where you live, obviously. But yeah. for me, it seems that, and I've probably had a thousand therapy sessions in my life. I actually had one yesterday with, with my daughter and it's really about 
peeling off those layers to get to the authentic self of who we are to stop the, I guess, those programs that we have inherited or adopted throughout our childhood and through our culture that no longer serve us, which might have served us for a period of time. And what are the ways that we can present this as something that's real to the public through the vehicle of a documentary? These plant medicines and psychedelics, I'm really interested in because through my own experiences, they can really open our eyes to who we are and help us release these, I guess, inbuilt programming that we've adopted, which may not serve us. So talk to me about, because some people might have never heard what ketamine is or K is. So could you explain what that is and why you're interested in this and why you use it as a tool? Yeah, absolutely. And can I just add to what you're saying? The one way I phrase uh, sort of what you're saying is, look, we need to feel our feelings to heal ourselves. Hmm. And so much of what we have been using, again, in Western medicine world, antidepressants like SSRIs, SNRIs, opiates, benzos, these are all chronic, sedative, sedating, suppressive drugs. Hmm. They don't heal. They just let us get through the day, you know, or sleep through the day, whatever, or feel numb through the day. And to have real healing, to take, peel off these layers like you're talking about, to really see your feelings, to really like be able to process them and move through them and change yourself, you know, really create, you know, some changes in your brain mechanisms. Um, you need a powerful experience and a powerful tool that doesn't suppress and sedate and shut things down. So I think when it comes to cannabis and a lot of these psychedelics, that's what they're doing. They're not drugs that you need to take every day to get these effects. These are drugs that you take, just like you described, a therapy session with a family member, with a therapist, using some kind of, um, you know, like virtual reality is a great modality to, to, to be used. Some people have never heard of that. But you can use these drugs to have these profound transcendent transcendental experiences and heal yourself so to the point where you don't need to suppress your feelings, but instead, you know, work through them and, and, and grow and, and change and, and be the kind of person you want to be. So I think that's what we're talking about. To answer your question regarding ketamine, this is a drug discovered in the 1950s at a time where they were discovering a lot of drugs. They discovered LSD back in that time. There's a lot of MDMA. There's a lot of drugs from that era. At that time, it was used as an adjuvant with psychotherapy, uh, and they were getting great results. And people were really having experiences, and they were healing. And then through the 50s and 60s, a lot of these drugs got wrapped up in the drug war. That had nothing to do with efficacy, safety, addiction potential, but rather a propaganda machine and just a motivation to suppress sort of drugs and vilify a lot of these drugs. So ketamine got wrapped up into that process and, and it got called special K and this thing called the K-hole got vilified and a lot of people became very afraid of this drug. What is ketamine? It's a, it's a disassociative anesthetic. Currently, we use it every day in our emergency rooms and our surgical suites to induce anesthesia. But at different doses, the effect has uh, the, the effect is different. So there's a dose-dependent response with ketamine, and uh, there's been lots of studies 
uh, looking at it for uh, breaking the patterns of addiction to helping with uh, disorders such as depression and anxiety, even bipolar disorder, even fear-related disorders. And, uh, and so it's regaining popularity as we see that, you know, our traditional medications are sort of failing people and our depression rates are sky high, our suicide rates are sky high. We're doing a very bad job in this country with psychiatric care. People are starting to realize that there are other options that already exist that are already known to be safe and we know how to use them. And so ketamine is one of them. And like I mentioned, psilocybin and MDMA are two other good examples. Those are going through the process to become legal here in America. But with ketamine, it never became fully illegal. I believe it's a class four drug. And so there have been off-label uses of ketamine throughout this country. Again, in the therapeutic setting that you described where, you know, you sit down with a therapist or a loved one and you get this, a dose of this medicine and you have an experience. So that's therapeutic in and of itself, to have this transcendental experience, have this great conversation, explore your mind and, and really uh, process it. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a lot that goes with that, right? It's not just take the drug, you feel better. You have to have a clear intention. You have to be in a safe environment. Set and setting is extremely important. This was emphasized by the recent book by Michael Pollan, uh, Changing Your Mind. I think if people are interested in this, that's definitely where I would start to mm -hmm. read about it. That's How to change your mind, yeah. How to change your mind, thank you. Um, yeah, just a really great, you know, he just wrote it in Clayman's terms and you can really digest it. It's really good stuff. But it, as recently as uh, this January, uh, the FDA just approved an intranasal spray that was uh, developed by Johnson & Johnson. That's a version of ketamine called S-ketamine. And that's already approved for the treatment of refractory depression. Hmm. And I think I'm really excited about that because it's, the government, the FDA, insurance companies acknowledging that these kind of therapies are effective and they will pay for them. And so right now I'm going to be able to deliver this nasal spray in therapeutic sessions in my clinic here in Los Angeles. I, I don't think I mentioned it's called Evolve Healthcare. And you guys could look me up on evolvehealthcare.com if you want to learn more. But yeah, you could come in. You, you get uh, one or two treatments uh, per week uh, over the course of two to six weeks. There's a couple different protocols. And, and you have this experience. It's not incredibly psychedelic. The S-ketamine is a form of ketamine that's less hallucinogenic. But we know uh, through research, which you can look up, I won't get too detailed in it, that ketamine increases neuroplasticity. And so what does that mean? Your brain becomes more flexible. The neural mechanisms, the neural pathways in your brain are are flexible after this drug. So if you want to change, if you want to uh, really change how you're operating, this is an option. Hmm. And that's both through the therapeutic experience, but also through the you know neurochemical mechanisms in your brain. I've got a question for you about that thing. So when you're talking about alternative medicine and even the name that you've created for your business, which is Sapien, so how did these drugs, I understand cannabis, psilocybin, mushrooms, magic mushrooms, but then we've got these other, as you call them, drugs like LSD or ketamine or MDMA, which from my understanding is created you know, by scientists or in a lab. Would you class them as something natural? And how do you, I guess, justify that that is a man-made substance that has these healing benefits? Do these 
fall into the same category as other pharmaceutical-made drugs? And I'm not trying to cut you out here, but I'm... Oh, it's a great question. I love it. Just from my perception and understanding. Yeah. I mean, look, I I don't think that the origin of the drug makes it good or bad, right? Mm -hmm. So there's also plant medicines that are dangerous and could, you know, be potentially lethal, right? I, I think the real concept here and what I was trying to emphasize is these treatment experiences. So through, like, instead of this daily subsidating medication, instead, the goal is to have these these transcending experiences that open you up mm-hmm. so that you can do the work off drugs going forward. And that's something uniquely homo sapien. It's very sapien, right? Uh, cultures, um, uh, you know, throughout the history of man have used rites of passage ceremonies, mm-hmm. uh, things like ayahuasca, you know, Native Americans have used plant medicines in these ways. So I think rather than focusing on like where the drug came from and, oh, it's it's synthetic, so it's not natural, but rather the idea that there are these drugs that can give you these profound experiences that when done correctly can change you in a way that going forward, you don't need drugs. You feel better. You're more connected to yourself. Mm. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, it like, does. I can't, I can't justify this, the synthetic or not synthetic nature of it, but if it's replicating an experience that we know homo sapiens have been doing since as far back as we can look, then then we are sort of mimicking, at least on some level, the experiences that we know are effective. Here's a question for you then. From your experience and your wisdom being a doctor that plays in sort of all fields, when we're talking about plant medicines, whether it be ayahuasca or uh, psilocybin mushrooms or even cannabis or toad medicine or anything like that, how does somebody know whether it's right for them and that it's the path that they may wish to consider? Because from my own experiences, it can be very traumatic, very challenging, very beautiful, very awe-inspiring, very like, whoa, what are we doing here in this realm? And I consider myself pretty balanced and pretty grounded. <laughs> well, some people could might disagree with that, <laughs> but I think I've got a pretty good <laughs> handle on it so far. But even in some of those experiences, I'm like, whoa, you know, that's just shifted my whole perception about my understanding of myself and actually my relationship to this existence. And yeah. to the point where sometimes I'm like, oh, it's a little bit unstable at this particular point in time until I reintegrate and understand what that experience was. How does a doctor prescribe this or even enter the subject that, you know what, maybe um, some psycho-assisted psilocybin or ketamine might be a journey for you or a visit down to the Peruvian jungle. How do you do this? Well, at this point, let's be clear. This is, uh, I'm not telling people to go do MDMA and psilocybin in the Peruvian jungle. (laughs) Um, I am still working through the mechanisms that are in place. And so I think the, to answer your question directly, you don't do it on your own, right? Historically, we've had shamans and, 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 people that understand what they're doing guide people through these experiences. And I, I think if people aren't ready and they haven't discovered it and they haven't done the research, they shouldn't be trying it. They need to, it's something you need to mentally prepare for. You need to have um, a support system, oftentimes people with you and certainly people that are experienced to help you. Like you mentioned reintegration, especially with some of the heavier drugs. But again, this is, this is where I think things are going. I think on like a very low fi version of that is what 
they just approved with Spravato, right? Is it's a very low dose that's unlikely to make you disassociate. It induces some euphoria, and then you have these neurochemical benefits over the next, you know, weeks to months. And rather than taking it daily, you're doing these therapeutic sessions. So I think that's the very low-fi version, and that's like an introduction to the Western medicine world of this approach Mm -hmm. to mental health. But as far as exploring it further, as far as psilocybin and these more aggressive drugs go, I think that you know we got to build mechanisms to do this safely. And I think that's what the government is doing right now with these phase three clinical trials is developing you know, a, a protocol that's safe. Mm. A lot of these protocols have a team. They have a therapist. They have a supervising physician. And they'll even have someone who focuses both on the setup, so counseling and therapy sort of before the treatment and the drug is taken. And then the, the what, what you said, the reintegration and sort of the what does this mean part after. And I don't think that, you know, a real benefit can be had without that kind of comprehensive approach. Mm. So I I don't think people should go willy-nilly taking drugs and hoping for the best, but rather being really thoughtful and finding the right mechanisms and the right environments. There's a lot of these that are not in the medicine world that people can find, but you got to know where to look and you got to really want it and go after it. And there is a certain level of danger uh, when when you're kind of, I love it, and I I respect your honesty and and also how professional you are with this, you know, and still keeping an open mind, but always err on the side of caution and responsibility. So that brings me back. We have these plant medicines out there, but we also have these pharmaceutical medicines that our doctors prescribe us. And you you mentioned a few earlier in the podcast. Now. Should people take these willy-nilly? If I mean, we're talking statins here, we're talking antidepressants, we're talking these things that we put our trust into our doctors, our trusted professionals, that they can write a script and say, okay, start on this. When does it come into the person's personal responsibility or accountability to perhaps question that or to perhaps do their own research on that? I mean, where do, where do you draw the line on that for that person, because we, we talked about that with the plant medicine side, but do we still need to do that with the pharmaceutical medicine side? A hundred percent. The responsibility starts immediately. There's, I don't think that, you know, you should be putting drugs or food or following anything without doing your research, especially in today's day and age where the, it, there's so much, it's an overwhelming amount of information. But if, you, if you're considering starting an antidepressant, do your research. Don't just take your doctor's word for it. You know, there's a lot of information out there um, and there's a lot we can learn. Let me give you an example, like with the antidepressants. It's not that I'm against them. It's that we sort of shoot from the hip, hope for the best, and then the cards lie where they will. And, And I don't like that approach. I think antidepressants like an SSRI are great, um, they shouldn't be kept on forever. Like you don't start one and then, oh, you have depression, you're on an SSRI, that's it. I'll, you know, keep going. No, you have to have uh, a reevaluation of the benefit of that drug. You have to evaluate for development of side effects. Um, and then you have to give, you have to constantly go through a risk benefit analysis of, uh, you know, is the benefit, am I still getting enough benefit to continue this compared to the side effects or the risks that I'm taking, like statins and, and some of these other things? Um, 
it's hard to not get into each individual drug. They all have their own subtleties, right? But it's just this idea of like, I'm going to start a medicine. Here you go. It's going to like numb your feelings and you're going to be on this forever. I don't like that. I think that even when you look at the recommendations, even with depression, you start the medicine, you, you do it for months and then you reevaluate and you constantly reevaluate and you constantly ask yourself the question, the doctor and the patient, do, should I continue this? Should I try to stop it? You know what I mean? Mm. Like it can't be this shotgun approach. And then furthermore, when it comes to antidepressants, it used to be that we, we would try one, then we'd try another if that didn't work, and we'd sort of try what's comfortable to the practitioner, and that's it, right? Or, or some patient would come in and say, I saw a commercial for Savello, or I saw a commercial for this or that, and that's why they try it. Uh, nowadays, we have more information. There's a pharmacogenomic testing that's become fairly affordable, and you can get tested and see what kind of liver enzymes uh, you genetically have. So you can see what drug you might respond better to, which, which drug you'll metabolize more quickly or less quickly. And, um, you know, you could there's a lot that you can do to learn about yourself and your body so mm. that you can know if you're on the right drug. So that's one thing. And then the second thing is constantly asking yourself the question, is this right for me? Is this still right for me? Because mm -hmm. what was right, last year might not be right this year. You know what I mean? And it can't just be a quick 10 minute, oh, everything's fine. Okay, keep moving. No, there has to be real thought put into these psychotropics because they affect so much of our lives. And I, and I definitely think people are a little too cavalier with, with, with use of drugs just because they're approved by you know, the FDA or something. And then they're too fearful of drugs that are not. It's drugs are drugs. The most horrifying drug is sugar. Hmm. That, we're all addicted to that drug, right? And people don't even think about sugar as a drug. But, but, I'll, but we know that it is, you know? So I, I guess that's my, my approach is to be more thoughtful, more individualized. And if I could give a, advice to you know, the listeners is if you don't have a good doctor-patient relationship, it's very going to be very difficult for you to get really good care. Hmm. So like knowing your doctor, seeing them regularly, and building a relationship is the way you're going to get good care because that's the only way that person's going to know how to take care of you. And, and at least here in America, we've really lost our way when it comes to, you know, the relationship between the doctor and the patient. And I think that's the heart of like, of the whole medical debacle we're in is we don't, we don't pay for the doctor patient relationship. We don't value it. We want quick, rapid results and we want to keep costs down. And that's, that shouldn't be the goal. The goal should be to take care of people and to keep them healthy. Because I'll tell you, that's how we're going to keep costs down is to keep people out of the hospital. One of the things that I talk about, and I, I'm a little bit cheeky when I say it, but it's like, find a healthy health professional. Yes. Oh, so good. Pete, you nailed it. <laughs> I mean, it's a little bit, I don't know, a little bit tongue in cheek when I say that. But how important is that? I mean, I'm looking at you now and, you know, you look good, brother. <laughs> That's Thanks, what I'm bro. saying. And there's a lot of health professionals out there that look great, but then there's ones that, you know, you're like, mm, how does a patient work this out? Who, who, who should they take their information from? Is it word of mouth? Is it, as you said, having that relationship? How do, how do you promote that? Yeah, it's a fit. I mean, I'm, I'm with you and I, I don't even think it's so cheeky, but if, if my cardiologist is morbidly obese and obviously miserable, I don't see how they're going to give me good recommendations. I mean, and I just see that all too often. 
that doesn't mean every doctor has to be the healthiest specimen, but I, I personally take it as a responsibility to live, to practice what I preach. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I try to live a lifestyle that's balanced and focused on my health so that I could be the healthiest when I see my patient and be a beacon of hope and be a marker of like, Hey, like, yeah, this guy knows what he's talking about and he does it, you know? But that being said, I, you know, I, I think for patients, the key is to find a good fit. Like if you sit down with your doctor and you don't feel comfortable talking about whatever it is you came to talk about, you need to find a new doctor, mm. you know? And, and if your insurance company or your insurance plan doesn't let you change or is limiting you, then it's time to change your insurance company or plan. Mm. But, but I, I, you know, I'll go back to that doctor patient relationship is I think that the way I can help my patients best is when I know my patient. So my first visit often is shooting the shit, right? Getting to know each other. What's your history? What have you tried? What are your goals? First question I ask is what is your goal? Right? Cause how can I help you if I don't know what you're after? Hmm. So if your doctor is not asking you those questions, then maybe, maybe you're not in the right place, right? It goes further. Like here we have urgent cares and a lot of people will get their care from an urgent care, which is pure sick care, right? You're just going to deal the acute issue. So going back to our talk about preventative care is go see your doctor when you're healthy. Cause it's, it makes for a pleasant, more pleasant visit, a less pressed visit. You get to know each other and you build rapport. And if you show up feeling horrible, they're going to deal with that and you'll never get to know them. Mm. Um, so maybe that, that, you know, I never really thought about that, but that's something I really encourage everyone to do is go do that well visit with your doctor. The, hey, I feel great. Let's talk about what we can do to keep me feeling great. You know? I got a question for you because it's interesting. I mean, social media is a wonderful platform and it has its positives and negatives. And people often share their own personal stories with me on, say, Facebook or Instagram. And one of the things they, they often say is, I taught my doctor about changing my diet and they didn't believe me. And then three months, six months, 12 months down the track, they're telling me to keep doing what I'm doing. And how does that work? You know, having a patient teach a doctor? Well, let me tell you, like, when I discovered that I was sort of misled with nutrition, I finished my residency. I went through my internal medicine residency and I understood biochemistry and physiology and pathophysiology. And yet I would get into arguments with nutritionists and dietitians and, and even other colleagues about, about food. They would, you know, I'd have a diabetic with high blood sugars dying from gangrene and I'm trying to get him into surgery and I can't because they keep feeding him you know, bread and baked potatoes and, and, you know, dessert. And I, and I'd be, and I'd argue with them, like, what are you doing? And they said, well, it's a carb controlled diet. We're just going to count the carbs and, and dose the insulin. And, and that just didn't make sense to me, but I didn't have an answer. And it wasn't until the last few years when I sort of discovered, uh, you know, I guess to wrap it up, this low carb, high fat, paleo, ketogenic metabolic therapy approach to nutrition, which I then repackaged in this concept of a sapien diet only to mean that it is food consistent with our homo sapien ancestry, that I was able to sort of put all the physiology and all the science together with recommendations. And those recommendations that I give now, when I talk about my sapien diet, my sapien lifestyle, they go directly against the American Heart Association, the American Diabetes Association, 
the government reg- re- recommendations, right? So I think for many doctors, it's a hard thing to accept that they were educated incorrectly and that they are supposed to give recommendations that turn out to be not true and in fact, potentially really bad for us, potentially propagating disease. Mm. I think it takes a lot of sort of open-mindedness and courage on the part of a physician to, to swallow that pill. And I think there's probably few that are out there. A lot of them, like myself, have to go through some kind of personal experience. I know a lot of doctors that agree with me are people that used to be super heavy, ask themselves why are they an unhealthy doctor, go down the journey and then discover ketogenic metabolic therapy and are now in the same world that I am. But think about it. You just went through you know, undergrad, med school, potentially three to seven years of residency training. And now you're going to say, I'm going to change my whole approach. I'm going to change my recommendations. And I'm going to recommend against what I was trained to say. And that is just, it's a huge hurdle. And that's one of the issues I, I struggle with when I work with registered dietitians in this country is that they it's very hard for them to let go of what they were trained. And basically, I disagree completely with this whole food, with this balanced, you know, grain rich diet that they recommend. And so I can't work with them because it's frustrating for them and they, they hear me, but they get cognitive dissonance and they can't move forward and they get frustrated and it's hard. So, you know, right now when I'm in the hospital, I, I keep picking on my cardiology colleagues because they're, they're really respected and people really look towards cardiologists, I feel like, to give recommendations. And when I see a cardiologist, you know, putting people on high dose statins, driving their LDLs to the ground, when, especially when they're old, I ask them the questions of like, well, what evidence is this? And why are you doing this? And oftentimes it's just driven by recommendations and not actual individualized thought and personal analysis of the breadth of research out there. Maybe that's a lot for me to ask every doctor to make their own opinion about what's healthy. But, but I think that's what I'm saying is every doctor needs to ask themselves, do I believe what I'm telling my patients? Is it working? If I keep recommending a low carb, a low fat diet, and my patient keeps coming back with stents, maybe I'm doing something wrong. I heard um, this interesting figure the other day, and it was something like Weight Watchers, and I know you've got it in the states, but their success rate is something like three or five percent or something. And I, and I was like, could you imagine any other business out there or industry <laughs> where, you know, if you bought a car, only three out of one hundred of them actually worked? They got you to your destination. I was like, how does a business like that stay in business? Yeah. Unless it's through emotional manipulation and whatever it may be, or has the business been set up for the consumer or the the customer to actually fail each and every time so that they have a recurring business? Because going back to, say, being a doctor, if you help somebody on their journey talking about how to look at diet, lifestyle, all of these contributing factors to health. Are you really doing yourself out of repeat business? (laughs) That's the problem. So, you know, I was just thinking about this connection. We talked about food and we talked about drugs. And it's like one of the biggest challenges to get people to, to, to understand what we're talking about when it comes to nutrition is the fact that people are addicted to sugar and carbohydrates. Like 
that is the most powerful drug out there. And they, it has been hijacked by the food companies and they, they're hijacking our addictive mechanisms in our brain. And when I, when we talk about our, you know, these food recommendations, the concept of not eating bread every day is, is like mind blowing to people, right? They can't even accept that there's not a carbohydrate on their plate uh, most days. And, and I think so much of that is, is drug addiction, right? And that's where this parallel between food and drugs uh, is, to me, it becomes really salient, is food is drugs. Like, it's medicine, it's drugs, and the most powerful is sugar. And until we can separate ourselves from that sugar and grain addiction, we can't really see what's healthy because we're really just a drug user looking for our next fix. Hmm. And, and I think it takes people some, something profound to happen to them, you know, a heart attack. I don't know, something really to, to really rock their world to, to, for them to step back and say, whoa, am I really, do I really need this food to make me feel good? Or can I use other things to make me feel good, like the love of my family, relationships I have with my friends, exercise, a million other things that make you feel good, right? And I think that's probably the, the thing that links all of us in this sort of ancestral thinking world is, you know, how do we unhijack our brains? How do we disconnect ourselves from this? this this machine that makes us addicted i mean i grew up eating cereal i had to disconnect myself from cereal mm, interesting and you asked before what a, what the goal is for the patient and i'd love to ask you what the goal is for the doctor absolutely you know <laughs> such a great question you know it's also like yeah i mean what is the doctor's goals oftentimes it's it's to get to the next patient and go home right I mean, my goal, and I tell all of my patients, is to teach you how to eat so that you can feel good for the rest of your life. Hmm. To improve quality. It's why I'm leaving the hospital, because I feel like in the hospital, all I do is palliate people. I make them better enough to get out of the hospital. Hmm. I am not healing. So my goal, uh, again, I love the title of your book, and again, why we're so like-minded, is to heal. It is to make it so you don't need to see me every month. It's so that you can just come in and check with me and tell me how great you're doing and share your ideas with me and share good vibes. And I make, make me feel good and I make them feel good. <laughs> but, you know what I mean? Like it's, that's a relationship. Those relationships is what human beings stri- thrive on, mm. you know, but, but when I give you an SSRI and you don't feel anything and you don't make eye contact and you don't build relationships, it, it doesn't heal anyone. And I guess um, talking about relationships with doctors, I know many people that rely so much on visiting their doctor. And it was interesting what you just said then. I wonder if some of that is just that human connection that some people that are very lonely, that's their friend. And, and I'm generalizing here a little bit and I'm, I'm taking a bit of liberty here, but I wonder if that's the case for elderly people or people that don't have many friends. It's like, if I'm sick and I go visit my doctor, I'm going to get some attention, you know, which I'm craving. Yeah, look, I have a bunch of really tough patients. Well, quote unquote, tough patients, right? People will, doc, other doctors, specialists will send me their patients that are really like going to see a lot of doctors and really struggling, right? And, and for me, it's easy. Those patients, I just have a conversation about anything. 
about life, about how they're feeling. I become an emotional social support system hmm. because a lot of the chronic diseases that we deal with, specifically psychiatric diseases, things like fibromyalgia, you know, if you look in the literature, they talk about, oh, frequent doctor visits, close follow-up is, you know, correlates with better outcomes. It's because those people are looking for a human connection. And so a lot of my colleagues that then get those quote unquote tough patients sit there and try to look for an answer, right? They're like, oh, well, what drug can I give you? Where, where, what person can I refer you to? When all these people need is like a human being in front of them, looking them in the eye instead of in the computer and saying like, I get it. It sucks or whatever it is sucks or, or I hear you. And that's all they ever need. So, so I definitely think that there's something to which you're, you know, just the relationship, just the human touch. And I think it, as we move into a world of protocol medicine and, and, and shorter office visits and, and managed care where people don't even have a primary care doctor, they have like a team of random people they never know, you lose that human touch. And, and you know, when we talk about the psychedelic stuff, it's the goal is to connect people to their human, to the core of who they are, which is a human animal mm. that has feelings and emotions. And, and by the way, there's stuff deeper, right? Like, we, some people call it religion and God, and some people call it love, and some people call it vibes. But look, there's stuff that we're all connecting on on a different level that we don't have the best answers for, and science hasn't always described the best, and sometimes religion has described it better than science. But that's got to be part of medicine. Like You cannot separate spirituality and emotion from medicine, and that's what we've done. And that's why I think there's this huge huge psychiatric burden that's only growing because a lot of that has to do has to be dealt with on a spiritual basis and you know some people feel that religion's the only answer for that but it seems like what we're talking about everything from nutrition to psychedelic medicine to just a good relationship with your doctor feeds that spirit mm. and if you do that i guarantee you you're going to do better <laughs> like it's not going to fix everything right but it's going to be another chip another you know another stack on the good on the positive instead of you know a hollow experience or someone threw drugs at me to numb me and that's multiple chips on the negative side of the spiritual uh, balance that i'm mm. up here does that make sense is that too like but it does and it brings me back to actually what you do and you've got a clinic in la called evolve which i, I love that <laughs> i love that that name that you've created and also sapien i think we're speaking the same language here and i've noticed you are a proponent of uh, intravenous vitamin supplementation with a glutathione and different things like that and i also noticed that you're considered a bit of an expert in the thyroid game i, I want to ask about those two things in particular why is it that people are having so many thyroid issues and the second part of the question is how can intravenous vitamins or supplements benefit instead of just taking a normal supplement through the mouth so as far as the thyroid goes um i think it's a it's on some way, you could think about it as the canary in the coal mine, right? It's, it's a, it's a cholesterol based hormone, um, that's pretty susceptible to derangement. And I think that oftentimes when people have issues, including things like Hashimoto's, which is an autoimmune disorder, it's multifactorial. It's, it's, um, 
it's, it has to do with genetics. It has to do with diet. It has to do with lifestyle. And so I do think that I end up dealing with a lot of thyroid disease because that's the kind of disease process that could be ameliorated by lifestyle modifications, uh, not just replacing the thyroid. I also, and I don't know the research specifically for this, but I also think that if you're not eating enough cholesterol, you're not eating fat and your metabolism, especially your fat metabolism is broken and you're just dependent on these carbohydrates, how can you have a healthy hormone system when your hormone system is completely based on cholesterol and fat, right? Mm -hmm. I'll go further and I'll say a lot of our issues that we see have to do with our gut uh, with our gut and the microbiome that exists there and the interface between uh, the gut and the inside of your body. And that interface is a lipid membrane. If you're consuming fake fats and you're not consuming enough healthy fats and you know, you're know you having too many omega-6s and there's not enough cholesterol and you're avoiding all these saturated fats, which we need for our membranes, of course, we're going to have a broken membrane. And then we're going to have this gut microbiome that's broken. And that's going to lead towards all, all sorts of issues. And then you go further and you say, okay, well, the blood brain barrier is also a lipid membrane. And so now we see all sorts of psychiatric diseases. We see a lot more of these abnormal neurological issues um, that we can't explain. And well, you can, if that membrane is broken, if the communication is broken because the fats are not right and the metabolism is not right, you have disease. Mm. So I don't know if that's kind of a convoluted answer, but that's where I'm at when it comes to hormone management is you don't always have to replace it. You can fix it. I've got a question then with with thyroid. My mum suffers with issues with her thyroid and she was told by a doctor maybe 10 years ago that because it's no longer or hardly anything is there, you can never heal it. Is that correct that you cannot heal something once it's gone past the point of no return or is there a point of no return? You know, that's different for every disease process, right? Mm. And sometimes we think there's a point of no return and then we discover that you can fix it. Mm. So I don't know. I used to say that dementia was when the brain is irreversibly damaged and that is the definition. And yet we're finding out that there's mechanisms that can be reversed like hyperglycemia in the brain and this idea of type 3 diabetes causing Alzheimer's disease or Alzheimer's disease rather being a form of type 3 diabetes if the brain and that if we change uh, and put people on a ketogenic diet, they can do better. So I, I don't know. It's a really complicated question. And I think probably when it comes to thyroid, it depends on the individual, how old they are, what's causing the thyroid disease. But I definitely think that Whenever someone says they know 100% without a doubt the answer, question them. (laughs) (laughs) It's very, very hard to know something 100% without a doubt, right? Uh, I think think being open-minded and realizing that we're always learning and we're always changing and we have to be open to grow is the best way to, to help anyone. And then you've got the intravenous. Tell us about that. Yeah, going to the vitamins, this comes back to a lot of questions, but you know, if your diet's not great and you don't have a perfect homo sapien diet, and how can you with the, the really difficult and I don't know, I don't even know what bad word to use, but our food system is really bad. We have lots of problems. You know, it's not enough to just poo-poo on agriculture. There's a lot of problems with our food system. So I think supplementation is important. And I don't think that the concept of making expensive urine with supplements, I think that that's not smart to say that. I think that there's a lot of vitamin deficiencies uh, with a with an American diet, and even if you're trying to eat like you know, I have some carnivore friends, 
Um, very difficult to get all the nourishment unless you're very open-minded and are willing to really eat nose to tail. There's this concept of eating nose to tail. If you eat the whole animal, you'll probably get everything you need. Mm. Very difficult to convince people to eat adrenal glands and liver and pancreas and thyroid glands. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like it's very hard to do this. So I think IV supplementation is a great way to, to sort of bypass that and, and give your body a boost. Furthermore, um, the probably the most important reason why vitamin therapy is works is the idea of absorption. So back to what I was saying about the gut, the gut membrane and the gut microbiome being dysregulated, this causes trouble with absorption of certain vitamins and certain foods um, and certain micronutrients, I should say. So when you deliver these to the vein, there's no issues with absorption. It's 100% absorbed. I've delivered it exactly where it needs to go and the heart will pump the blood and with these vitamins all over your body and presumably uh, the cells will absorb them and, and there you go. So I think those are two you know, ways where vitamin therapy really... And then the other way to think about it is it's sort of like a biohacking, right? Is um, sure, you can take a pill every day. Um, maybe there's uh, some absorption going on there, but if you take... Uh, these doses through the vitamin, through the IV, you can one, absorb higher doses, but two, really get it in there rapidly and really see the effects more quickly. Mm. Uh, a simple version of that is just IV hydration, right? Is if you're really dehydrated and you start drinking water, it's going to take a while for you to feel better. But we've all seen it in the emergency rooms and it's done in IV clinics all over the world. You go in there hungover, dehydrated. You went on too hard a workout. You got sick and vomited. And I give you one or two liters of lactated ringers or normal saline. You're going to feel like a million bucks right away mm. because it goes right where it needs to be rapidly. And so, you know, is that fully natural? No, but it works and it's safe and it's not that unnatural. Mm. Um, so, you know, this is kind of a parallel with the question of, you know, taking drugs that are synthetic or not, I think it's it. A lot of it depends on your intention and sort of who you know the environment and the approach and using appropriate doses, not overdoing it, but also not underdoing it and selling people expensive drips that don't actually have effective doses of vitamins. I see that all the time. So yeah, I, you know, you mentioned glutathione. I think glutathione is like the the most powerful product I have in my IV vitamin uh, uh, sort of toolkit. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know about it until I got into the vitamin game, but glutathione is your master antioxidant. Every cell in your body has glutathione and it is the ultimate antioxidating agent in your cells. And when we take antioxidants, when we do things to help with inflammation, um, we're we're trying to increase our intracellular glutathione levels. That is really what we're after with antioxidants. Mm -hmm. And so what a great way to increase that by delivering a high dose of glutathione directly to your vein and having your cells absorb it because oral glutathione does not absorb well through the gut, even the, the lipophilic form. It's very low absorption. So I deliver it to the vein and, and people have all sorts of profound effects from it. That's a whole conversation, the benefits of glutathione. <laughs> well, I'm flying over to LA in, a, in about a month, and uh, I think I'm going to stop in for a glutathione intravenous when I land uh, to deal with the jet lag and to <laughs> recalibrate myself. I want to ask you one last question because you said it earlier and it, it pricked my ears up. You mentioned something about fiber. And yeah. 
potentially that the information we've got on fiber may be a little bit um, uh, untrue yeah. or uh, not, not exactly uh, the correct information. And, and I'd love for you to elaborate on that because we've never talked about that on the podcast before. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of misunderstandings in the world of nutrition, right? You Obviously, you've talked a lot about fat and carbohydrates, but when it comes to fiber, you, I was trained, you know, and the recommendations are to give five plus servings of fiber. You know, there's various recommendations on grams. And, and when you look into the history of where did these fiber recommendations come from, they came from observational research. Uh, by Dennis Burkett, who is a famous uh, doctor, like in the 50s, I believe. And he went, I believe it was to Tanzania and saw that they're eating all this fiber and came back and told everyone, oh, fiber is so great. And we went ahead with these recommendations. And then years later, they were supported by these epidemiological studies where they asked people who were eating a healthy diet, who were following recommendations, how much fiber do you eat? And they found a correlation between high fiber and various benefits like decreased cardiovascular uh, risk. Mm-hmm. Um, it turned well for one, and I'm sure a lot of your viewers understand this is that epidemiological evidence is just uh, not real. It, it's not conclusive, and you can't base recommendations and make assumptions on that. And so, when you look at fiber and the research that has been on, done on it, what you see is that for sure, high fiber diet does not decrease the risk of adenoma formation or the risk of colon cancer. So when you actually look at feeding studies where you see how much fiber people are taking, it, it doesn't do that, which is claimed to decrease risk of cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, it also seems to increase the risk of bloating and something called diverticulosis, which is outpouching of, of your colon. Um, and, and it's interesting because, it, you know, most doctors are, you know, someone comes in and they're constipated. The recommendation is eat more fiber. Take a Metamucil supplement, take the psyllium husk. And the reality is that it is propagating more bloating, more constipation. People are pooping three or four times a day, these big bulky stools. That's not consistent with our biology and our ancestry. You don't know, no, you weren't surviving by pooping four diet times, these huge bulk. It's not, it doesn't even make sense when it comes to common sense, you know? So I do think that, you know, eating some fiber is important, but these big, these doses for these big, you know, the recommendations for these big doses, they just don't, they don't stack up when you look at the research and they don't clinically make any sense. And since this has come to light for me, I do a lot of hospice work, which maybe one day we'll talk about, you know, we're running out of time. But what I, when I see old people struggling with their bowels and they're on fiber supplements and they're eating salad, I actually have started telling them to stop. And all of a sudden, they feel better. They're not bloated. Their stomach's not constantly like filled and they're not pooping themselves all day. So <laughs> I'm not laughing about the, the, the <laughs> what you said, but it's interesting because we've got a couple of horses or a few horses on our, on our farm and we actually pick up their poo using this poo vacuum on a ride on four wheeler and we distribute it then into, we've got some native trees we're playing with the veggie garden, this type of thing. So if you've got three horses, you've got no idea about how much they poo per <laughs> times per day. Like it's, they, they must poo at least five to 10 times per day. And what you were saying was it's not natural for us to be doing that. And that just triggered me because I was like, yeah, they, well, they're herbivores. You're, yeah, you just, you described an herbivore and we are facultative carnivores. Probably we were scavenger carnivores when we began. 
and our bodies are not built to digest all this plant matter. And, you know, we can survive on plants. Some plants are great. They're good medicines. They provide us some micronutrients, but it's just not our primary source of nutrition. I guess what you just said is don't make plants your primary source of nutrition. Would that be correct? Yeah. Yeah. Or don't pretend the eggplant is as nutritious as the steak. Mm -hmm. Like it's just not. And don't pretend that eating a huge salad is going to make you healthy. It's not. You know, eating a homo sapien, a species appropriate diet, focusing on nutrient density and and optimizing that diet to customize it to yourself. That's the approach. Hmm. And, you know, vilifying meat and, um, you know, sort of venerating plants is not the answer. Uh, you know, we have to be more thoughtful than that. And we have to realize that a lot of our ideas are not from science. They're not from human history either. They're from all sorts of financial, religious, and historical contexts that are frankly outdated. And we mm. don't, we live in a time where we can, we know more and we can communicate more and it's time to listen to each other. And I worry, you know, I worry about people when they don't believe me. I'm like, well, but you're sick. Well, what do you, hmm. what, you know, you're here and you're like, you don't want to hear this, but, but you're looking for a new recommendation and here it is. And it just sounds too, too good to be true. And so they don't buy it. It seems to be coming very not cool to promote meat out there in the mainstream Western world. And I'm taking a stand actually with social media that pretty much every post that I do now is celebrating this. And hopefully that'll inspire people to to think about where their meat comes from and the importance of it. I'm not a hashtag type of guy, but I'm finishing it off with, you know, like this dish is full of healthy animal fats and proteins. And yeah. It's, it's trying to get that message across in a, in a subtle and maybe not so subtle way. I hear you. And look, one of the things that I hear a lot of is the ethical argument that, oh, you know, animal agriculture is bad. And one thing I always educate people on is it's agriculture. Our entire agriculture system is not working correctly for our planet and for humans. So by not eating animals, you are not bypassing that poisonous system, you cannot take the moral high ground here. And rather than vilifying animals or the consumption of animals, let's instead support farmers that do it correctly. And so one of the dreams of our, of our company Sapien was to actually create or provide food to people that make sense. And so uh, Brian uh, recently launched nosetotail.org. Hmm. And that is uh, one of these, you know, you can order food. But what he's done is we've partnered with uh, uh, farmers in Texas that do rotational grazing, that take care of their animals. They do everything to feed them uh, species-appropriate diets. They don't feed, feed their cows corn. You know what I mean? They do <laughs> it right. And, and, I incur and, and what we also go further is to say, okay, we're not just going to sell you the muscle meat, but we're going to incorporate some of these really nutritious organ meats into the muscle meat. So we have something called Primal Light, which is a mix of muscle meat and organ meat, which mm. makes very nutritious product. And we encourage people to you know, order our grass-finished bone broth and just these really nutritious, amazing foods that are life-giving, um, provided by farmers that are doing it in a way that's good for our planet and good for people. Mm. And 
And, and that's, we're not the only company doing that. There's, it's, it's becoming a thing. And, and I just encourage people to really step outside themselves and realize it's all agriculture that needs to be fixed. And the only way we can fix it is through our pocketbooks and, and not by buying uh, tomatoes that were chemically uh, matured and then they called them organic. Mm. Just before this podcast, I took the kids down to the bus stop to go to school and their breakfast today was a grass-fed organic beef patty, like a burger patty and a fried egg, which was a biodynamic egg, and a little bit of sauerkraut, some avocado, some sprouts on there. And we've got some paleo tomato sauce we create. That was their breakfast along with a little bit of coconut yogurt and some organic wild berries. Those are some lucky kids, Pete. My little one couldn't finish the last of her burger. She goes, you know what, Dad, I'm full. And I'm like, it just clicked in my head. I was like, imagine how many kids out there that are having that bowl of cereal that aren't getting that nutrient-dense food and no wonder by two hours later, yeah. they're going to be hungry and starving and irritable and, and not focusing at school. And, yeah. and I said to my kids, I said, that will keep you going till lunchtime, what you just ate then. And they still probably haven't worked it out because they're 13 and 14, uh, what trying to, to teach them. But just putting that on the plate, and it took me all of 10 minutes, off they went to school with a, um, a paleo chicken wrap from leftover roast chicken from last night. And look, in 20 years from now, you know, how is that your girls are going to make healthy thyroid hormones because they were felt fed the building blocks for that thyroid hormone throughout the course of their life mm. instead of low fat, low saturated fat, low cholesterol diet, and then potentially they're deficient in those building blocks and then develop disease later. Mm. So that's just my hypothesis, but it certainly makes sense that if you're chronically malnutrition, even if it's just subtle, you develop disease later. You pay for it later. And interestingly enough, I have a couple of supplements out online and I'm not here to promote them. But this morning, we've created an oyster capsule, which is freeze-dried yeah. oyster, and also beef liver from organic beef. So every morning, they get a probiotic and they get the oyster and the liver capsule. It wasn't that long ago that even in America, parents were giving their kids a spoonful of cod liver oil. Mm. Like that was... 70 years ago, you know, Nina Teicholds, and I've said this before, but it's just such a great quote. Nina Teicholds said in her book, The Big Fat Surprise, you know, it's, it, you know, nutrition or food, it, it's like a, a song or a language. It just takes one generation for it to be forgotten. Mm. You know what I mean? One generation of not educating or miseducating and that language or that song is gone. And that's where we're at with nutrition is we've had this 70 year run where like you know people have forgotten what a real diet like mm. you know and and we are we just need to remind them Pete we need to like post these pictures and and share our message and I think people will they'll hear us I think they'll hear us the other supplement the kids take was um, I just got some these Nordic fish oils yes. and uh, made from anchovies and sardines but they've actually got glutathione in them and curcumin so it's this really nice blend of those three and again here you go kids and and, you know i'm not a huge supplement guy but that i feel safe giving them that especially with the glutathione and and the turmeric in there and and the fish oil that comes from wild caught sardines and anchovies that's sustainable from cold water so you know you do your bit and hopefully it, it works and and open to change when new information comes I think that's the biggest thing is people need to be open-minded and realize that we don't have all the answers and it's okay to be wrong 
and change your mind and try again and try again and try again until you get it right. Mm. And I think that's just all I try to encourage my patients to do is just, hey, try something different and see how you feel. Because I bet you you're going to feel better eating real food. (laughs) Amazing, amazing, um, you know, responses and life transformations. And I've just been at it about three years here at Evolve Healthcare. And it's, it's like the most satisfying thing when someone comes in and it's not, you know, they've lost 20, 30, 40 pounds, but they don't talk about that. Hmm. They talk, they tell me how, how awesome they feel, right? They tell me how they're, they're about their energy, about their sex life. They tell me how their exercise is just so on a different level. They tell me about how they don't take medicine for acne anymore. Like that is so exciting, so inspirational, so life-giving to me. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why I'm here talking about this because, you know, this isn't aesthetics. This isn't, you know, this is real life. This is, this is healing. This is how you live your best life. And that's all anyone's trying to do, right? Mm-hmm. So. In a very unnatural world. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, mate, I've, I've loved this podcast. I really appreciate having this conversation with you today, Gary. And I uh, just want to say we love you. I love you. And I can't wait to come to Evolve and um, meet you face to face in the flesh and book in for some of that glutathione and uh, a, bit, a bit of that doc- doctory love. <laughs> And thank you so much for making your movie because, uh, I don't know, I think I mentioned it right before we started, but uh, The Magic Pill was really inspirational to me and it really kind of locked in a lot of these ideas that were floating around in my head and it really pushed me to to start making these recommendations and not be afraid to talk about this stuff publicly, which I was when I first started. And, and it's been a real inspiration and it's so exciting that um, I'm able to talk to you and I, I can't wait to meet you here. So oh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you, brother. And uh, from all of our listeners, thank you so much and have a beautiful day. Thanks. You too. Take care. The information, views and opinions expressed in this podcast should not be treated as a substitute for nutritional, medical or other advice by a qualified professional. Guests in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences and conclusions Nothing in this podcast should be used to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any medical condition. Neither Pete Evans nor any sponsor endorse any views, opinions, or conclusions expressed or shared in this podcast.